you would, go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, let's get right after it. If you remember, uh, over the last few weeks, we've been basically doing a series uh, on the home, on the Christian home. What does the Bible have to say about uh, the home? If you remember from the beginning, we had uh, Pastor Fred, Esther, they came and they did a, uh, basically a testimony that sat up right, right up here and said, here's how God has sustained us in our marriage. Remember, remember that? And, and then even last week, we had Pastor Ken got up, and um, I think it was last week, he had all all, all of the, the different pieces, and he, and he showed us some boots and different things that all represented parenting. So we looked at the family from that perspective. And so today, as it, it seems that's my habit to do this, is to be a closer uh, once again. So we're closing out our series uh, on the home. And I thought it would be fitting that we would choose not necessarily an easy passage, but if you know anything about 1 Corinthians 7, um, it's a challenging passage, but guess what? All scripture is God-breathed, and it is sufficient to speak into our lives, right? And so there, there is so much here that I think really fills in the cracks of everything that we've been talking about and addresses uh, some, some much-needed things that we need to hear in our culture uh, today. And so uh, I want to say this. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1 through 6. Um, maybe we'll get verse 7 there in the beginning. And I'm going to use the word physical intimacy. That's where Paul, yeah, we're, we're going right there, right from the beginning. Um, Paul talks about this, and we want to read what he has to say. Mom and dad, if you haven't yet had that talk with your kids, this is your chance to decide that um, going to the por- having them in the portables and kids' ministry would be great for them. Um, but if not, let's get right into it. Let me read verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to live a self life. You may have in your Bible parentheses where it'll say, um, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, Paul is responding to that statement right there. All right, look at verse two. But because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have their own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. And the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. You may want to underline that. We'll come back to that. Verse four. Uh, Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves to more prayer. I love that. Uh, More completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish that everyone were single just as I am, but God gives to some the gift of marriage and others the gift of singleness. Holy cow. There's a lot right there to look at. Let's kind of set the table for what's happening here. If you've ever read um, the the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that Corinth, uh, that church in in Corinth was a messed up church. If you think we have problems here at Sunnyside, uh, let, me, let me tell you about this. These guys had different groups within their church. Like, go figure, there was factions, there was disunity. And so some said, I follow Peter. Others say, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Jesus. Like, aren't we all supposed to follow Jesus? But there was a Jesus group there. And so they were all, all were going different which ways. And some were saying, I have got this spiritual gift. This one's more spiritual than your spiritual gift. And some of these other guys were coming along and saying, we're going to be really progressive here. 
And so by being progressive, they even allowed one guy to sleep with his stepmother. And so Paul sees all of this crazy that's going on, and he speaks into this. Oh, by the way, did I mention the next chapter right after that? It just keeps on going. These guys were taking each other to court. And so Paul goes, are you kidding me? Instead of dealing with problems in-house as a church family, you're letting non-Christians in the course decide the issues between you as you're suing one another. Man, if you think we have problems, Corinth had some serious issues, and it keeps on going. Uh, the men, imagine this picture just for a moment. Uh, you've got the grocery store, uh, you've got the synagogue, right, church, right, in, 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 in the early period, and then you've got the brothel right next door. So imagine a husband go to church on a Sunday morning. This is a little over-exaggeration, but you get the point. We, we, we go to church on Sunday morning, and he go to the brothel in the afternoon. Great dad, right? And so Paul's looking at all of this, and he says in chapter 6, you should flee from sexual immorality. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then that leads to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, some people had been going around saying, well, maybe if these guys are doing that, it would be good just to give up all sorts of physical contact altogether, so maybe a man shouldn't touch his wife. And so Paul says, well, hold on just a second. And he, and he gives us this first principle. So principle number one, to the spouses, Paul says to you, don't deprive one another, enjoy each other in marriage. It's a good thing to do. Now, for evangelicals, we've got a, a, something of a problem here. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up really churched. I went to uh, Sunday school, and I went to the service from an early age. I think I may have shared in here before. I remember from, like, one of my first ever memories, I remember being in church and seeing uh, a guy to my right. I must have been maybe, maybe three or four, and I still remember this, and he was weeping as his hands were raised, and I remember, well, I guess that's what you do in church. So I remember trying to make myself cry as I was raising my hands. That, that, that's, that's me in church from the beginning. And, and not only was I going to church on Sunday morning, Mom and dad had me going to the Christian school Monday through Friday. So I got Monday through Friday, Wednesday night youth group, and I was getting church on Sunday morning. A, a lot happening there. In my experience, what I have found is this, especially in youth group when I got into high school. Uh, what did the youth leader say? Don't commit sexual immorality. Chapter 6. Let me just read a little bit of chapter 6. It says, run from sexual sin. No other sin as clearly affects the body as this one does. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Amen, right? We agree with that. Here's the problem, though. I heard chapter 6 at the expense of chapter 7. Because in chapter 6, you're getting, don't do these things what God has called you not to do. But if you only preach that message, you only get part of the piece of the whole puzzle. And the other part of it is the blessing that God gives. And so Paul is not going to say for a minute in, ag in agreement, oh, if you want to be really spiritual, don't touch one another. Don't, don't, don't stay away from your wife. No, the, the church has gotten this wrong all throughout the last two millennia. You are not extra spiritual because you are avoiding physical contact. Paul is instead saying true intimacy is found in marriage. God has created it, and so you should enjoy it. Amen? Thank you. All right. And if you, don't th if, if you think that's just me saying this, uh, I want to read something. I really debated whether or not I would read it, and I thought... We should. And so Song of Songs, chapter 4, some of you know where I'm going here. Is he really going there? Yes, I am going to read it. Song of Songs 4, this is a picture 
of intimacy in marriage. And there's a lot of metaphors here, and I'll let your mind connect the dots. The husband says this to his wife. He looks at her from head to toe, and this is what he says. You are beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves beyond the veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the shapes of Gilead. When's the last time you said that to your wife? Uh, your teeth are as white as sheep. You got all your teeth? Uh, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth matched with its twins. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with shields of, of, a, of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He's not talking about physical mountains here. Connect the dots. You're altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. He goes further down. He says, your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Only a certain kind of kiss can get to the milk and the honey. And then he says this, you are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Your, your thighs shelter a paradise palm, of palm pomegranates of rare spices, henna and nard, nard and saffron, fragrant calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes and every other lovely spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. And the wife says, awake north wind, rise up south wind, blow on my garden. Connect on the dots, good. And spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest fruits. Amen and amen, right? And then the husband says, I have entered the premises. I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and I eat the honeycomb with my honey. Amen. Okay, so <laughs> it is good to read our Bible because there are things in it that you may have not known that were there. And I say this somewhat in a humorous way because it's just kind of unnatural for us to talk about these things from the front like this. But the thing is, God has created marriage and he has created the blessings that come into it. So let me say this in case there is any, any confusion. Yes, you should flee sexual immorality. As Paul would have told the Corinthians, don't go to the brothel and go to the, see prostitutes. He would have said to us today, don't go to other wells that will run dry. I have, God has created marriage between a man and a woman for life, and you must enjoy one another. I command you to have fun. And I think, though, in all of this, I think about my friends in college as I was preparing for this. I was thinking about how when I was 18 or 19, I came out from that, that sheltered environment that I was in, and I went to play college soccer. Um, and I was there with guys. We would sit around uh, uh, warming up, stretching before practice, and the guys would talk about their, their exploits with women over the weekend. Fast forward about four or five years later, I'm married, and I remember looking back on that going, how cheap, how silly. That, that you, you would give yourself to someone. Paul says in chapter six, don't be bound to someone that, 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 that is not your spouse. I remember looking at that going, the joy that comes in marriage, that, that, that is way beyond the, the cheapness of what comes in seeking outside of God's will. What I am trying to say to you is that when we find sexual pleasure that God has given as a gift and we do it outside of the confines of what he has given, we are becoming far too easily pleased by eating dirt instead of enjoying the beauty of what he has given us in marriage. This is a wonderful thing. But not only that, he also calls for respect in marriage. Let me reread verse four. Verse four says this. 
It says, the wife gives authority of her body over to her husband. Husbands, that is your verse to know, not yours to quote. And the second part of the verse says, and the husband gives authority of his body over to his wife. Now, as husbands today, we may hear that and go, babe, this body is yours. Here it is, right? However, if you were to read this in the first century as a Roman, here's what you would find. In that culture where women were seen more as property, to their husbands. Paul is saying you are on, on an equal playing field. There is, there ought to be between you a mutual self-giving. You are not in charge of your body, your spouse is. There is a giving and a blessing that comes in marriage. So don't defraud one another by, by using this gift to manipulate the other. Don't defraud one another by, by going somewhere else to find satisfaction. The thermometer Many counselors will, will do this all the time. The thermometer for how good a marriage is going is indicated by the most intimate act that comes in marriage. And so God has given this blessing to us. And so number one, spouses remain in marriage and don't deprive one another. Number two, verse seven through nine. Let me, let me read this here. Paul says, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Paul is a single man. But God gives to some the gift of marriage and to others the gift of singleness. And so I say to those who aren't married and the widows, it is better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It is better to marry than to burn with lust. Than to burn with lust. Well, a, 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 a guy that I love to read, his name is Ben Stewart. He wrote a book called Single Dating, Engaged, Married. And he wrote a chapter where he talked about the gift of singleness. Now, I know that for some of us who are single in here, the very idea of singleness being a gift from God sounds absolutely terrible. And we would want to say to the Lord, Lord, you can have that gift back because I do not want that. Uh, but what Ben Stewart wants to remind us of is that there is a gift that comes in being single that you do not get when you're married. And that gift comes from being able to focus with undistracted devotion on the Lord without any distractions. Let me paint a little picture for you. This last week, I find out that my son has, uh, or earlier last, early last week had a fever. So guess what? He was up all throughout the middle of the night. I get a call uh, Friday uh, from Justine saying, August is at childcare, and somehow he's got his, you know, that piece of skin in between your, your lip and, and your, your gum, somehow is stuck between his two front teeth. So dad had to go over, take, take his son, console his son, get that out, and, and, and hold him, right? And so we're a family. I say that to you, not to say that, that it is a burden to be a husband, a burden to be a family man. What I'm saying is I absolutely love it. But I am thankful for that time when I was, I am young now, but I was even younger then, when I was 18, 19, and 20, of undistracted devotion so I could actually read this book cover to cover without any distractions and say, Lord, who am I in Christ? My identity is not in who I am as a husband. My identity is not in who I am as a father. My identity was first found in Christ Jesus, my Lord. What a blessing to be able to find that out before you get into the responsibilities that come in marriage. I think of Jim Elliott who says, let not our longing slay our appetite for living. Let not our longing slay our appetite for living. How many people do you know who have said, I just want this to happen. Once I get it, once I get that, that marriage, once I have that, then I'll be happy. And Jim Elliott looks at us and says, don't forget that God has called you to live in the here and now. Don't forget what is right in front of you. What is worse also, also, what is worse than being single is wishing that you were. 
And so my hope for you is that in the stage of life, if God has called you to godly singleness like Paul, is that you would not waste the gift that he has given you. And by the way, being single in God's family does not mean that you are a second-rate Christian, just so that we can clear that up. You are valued in God's family. Third, we have another thing that we have to talk about. In verses 10 through 16, if you've looked at this passage before, uh, you know that Paul gives some very countercultural words, very countercultural statements on how marriage is supposed to function um, that, 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 that can really challenge our own modern sensibilities. And I'm going to talk about the D word here, divorce. Before I go any further, here's what I want to say to those of us who have, may have gone through the pain uh, of a do- divorce and have dealt with the, the, the tragedy and the destruction that that has left in its wake, and you're still dealing, with, dealing potentially with the present effects of that. You also are not second rate in the kingdom of God. And if your family may have been broken over there, your church family loves you and is glad that you're here. There's no better place to be than right here in God's family where redemption happens when we serve Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm convinced of that. But what I do know is I want to ask you this. Would you allow me to do a little bit of preventative medicine, give a little bit of that, so that others here would never go through what you've been through before? Let me read verse 10. This is what, what God says. Through Paul, verse 10. But to those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, comes from the Lord. Paul is referring to what Jesus himself has already said. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Stop right there. Think of what Jesus says. What God has joined together let not man separate, right? That this is the Bible. This is what God's word says to us. And so you think of, I was just looking this up last night of the, the pain that can come from divorce. And let me just read, remind us again uh, uh, of what comes from divorce here in our culture that is so apt to see uh, marriage as a cell phone contract in which you can get into it, enjoy it as much as you want, and then get out with no consequences. Marriage is not like that. And here's what happens. Right now, 33.6% of marriages end in divorce. As far as children go, 21% are being raised. I've actually heard all the way up to 40% are being raised without their fathers. 16% are more likely to experience behavioral issues when divorce happens between the age of 7 through 14. Ask any teacher here, and they will tell you a kid typically is not just acting out to act out. It's because of something that's happening in the home. Two times more likely to drop out of school. Two times more likely to commit suicide. 70% of those who are incarcerated grew up in broken homes. It shouldn't be surprising, right? When you talk about the financial effects, in the state of California, just in case you were wondering, it costs on average about $15,000 to get divorced. Immediately, you go on average about 50%. You lose 50% of your income. Surprise, because you don't have the other spouse bringing in income. 60% of people under the poverty line are divorced women and children. And 50% go into poverty immediately after a divorce. You want the fast track to going into poverty, get divorced. That's what you you have here. Other stats, similar to the kill rate in smoking cigarettes, that you are likely to die an earlier death if you've been divorced. 1.4 million, I found this interesting, 1.4 million divorces in 2002 cost the the taxpayer an estimated uh, 30 billion in food stamps, 
public housing, and in bankruptcy because the government is helping out those who go underneath poverty. And so when we look at all this, we see that divorce is, it leaves absolute destruction, impacts children, and it impacts a whole host of other areas. And Paul looks at us in our own stuff, and he says, if separation happens between a Christian couple, here's my encouragement, don't seek to be remarried. And that just goes against our sensibilities. Feel free. Look back at verse 11. Don't seek to be remarried. Seek reconciliation. And isn't that exactly what Paul would call the Christian to do? Don't, don't run away from the situation. Enter into the situation. Seek reconciliation. If I remember uh, last week, Pastor Ken got in front of us and he stood right here and he said, if you have been cohabitating with someone who you are not married with and you want to get married, we love you as a church family. Come talk to me and let's get, and let's get you married. And I want to say this week, if your marriage is struggling and if you're dealing with absolute pain you don't know you, you don't see any hope on the horizon your church family does love you also in that arena as well come talk to us and, and let's work through this together this is the mentality that Paul gives when it comes to dealing with challenges in marriage and I can imagine that as I've been saying this some of us I can I can see some of our minds are, are spinning go, okay what about that situation what about what I went through there what about this this scenario and and the Bible does it give any exemptions for divorce. Let's look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 7, 12 now. Where I'm going to give you the one that Paul gives here, and then the two others that we as a church, as Mountain View Church, we believe in that gives exceptions for divorce. Verse 12, and now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. Jesus didn't say anything about this, but Paul is saying something about this. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says, If a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to continue living with him, she, he, uh, he must not leave her. Verse 13, And if a Christian woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they're holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is not no longer bound to the other. For God has called you. By the way, notice, bound to one another. That's important. For God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? Don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? There's this consistent theme that has been running. I don't, have you caught it? That, that Paul's been saying through every single one of these stages to those who are married, and God calls them to intimacy. And to those who are uh, single, God, God calls them to, uh, Paul says to be single. And then to those who are uh, dealing with separation and Christians, he calls them to remain. There's that constant word of remaining right where you are at. Remaining right where you are at. And then Paul says, remember that if you decide to stay with a spouse who is not married, what you will be doing is blessing them. Who else is going to tell your unbelieving spouse who probably isn't here today about Jesus? Who else is going to demonstrate through, through their lived life that, you, that, that, that Jesus is in their home, through the love that is placed within them? Can you imagine what it would be like if instead of tonight being, being angry because your spouse isn't acting like a Christian, because they're not one, because they only have the spirit of the living God within them, but instead you pray for them and said, Lord, would you save my husband? Would you save my wife? Can you imagine what that would do? over a long period of time. The blessings that come from being, from staying in marriage blesses the spouse, but it also blesses the kids. I, this is personal for me. You know, I mentioned that I was raised in a Christian environment. That was, that, was, that was mom and dad's choice, 
but it was primarily mom who was making that happen. For me, and I know that there are some in here today, this is your experience in this exact moment. It was mom, sister, and brother that were going to church without dad. And, you know, looking back on it, I don't hold any ill will to my father. How can I expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian? Didn't have the spirit of God in him. Pray for my father. This is being recorded. Lord, save my dad, right? That's, that's my mentality that I have towards my father. But I'm thankful that for the single parent and for the, for the, for the wife or the husband that is basically being a single parent in the spiritual uh, care of the home, God has not forgotten about you. God loves you. And it is a blessing that you're here and you are blessing your children. Do not forget about the good things that you're doing. And Paul says here, though, if, these, if the spouse wants to leave who's an unbeliever, you can permit them to leave. You are not bound. Two other instances, I want you to let you know this. We say this in our in MV101 class all, all, um, when we talk about this concept. And there's two other exceptions that we, that we see from Scripture that allow for divorce. Jesus, you remember we referenced what Jesus says. Jesus in Matthew 19, 9, he says, he says do, not, do not separate from one another. The only exception is except for porneia. And that is the Greek word for sexual morality. That's where we get the word porn from, right? He says, don't separate, but if this happens, that is a permission in the case of adultery. That's the second one. And then the third and the final one is in the case of abuse. Now, I want to let you know, this is a, this is a tough subject. Uh, for, uh, for about seven, almost seven years, I, I did not know what to do with the case of abuse. What do you do when a, when a spouse is being abused by, by, by his or her, her spouse? What, what do you do with that? Here at Mountain View, here's what we believe, and you should know this, that we see spousal abuse as being equivalent to abandoning your responsibilities in the home into your marital vows. And so know this, that as we have read this, if you currently are presently in the midst of an abusive relationship, we are not calling you to remain in that. We are calling you to safety. Please talk to me immediately after this. We love you, and we do not want anyone to have to go through that. Paul is not calling you towards that, and your church is not calling you towards that. It's necessary that we talk about these things because we believe in safety, but we also believe in reconciliation. Our posture as a church is not to look at these things and say, well, this is happening, all right, get out immediately. Our desire is to go, God has reconciled us to himself, and if he has done that, let us do the hard work of seeking reconciliation no matter what has happened in marriage. That is our approach here as a church. And so the funny thing is when you, when you look at all of this, I don't know if you've had this sense as I've been talking or as we've been reading this, do you have this sense? that there's an impossibility of maintaining these principles. These are the principles that God has called us to in marriage. Um, God has called us to in marriage, singleness, divorce, all of these things. And the main theme is that we're supposed to remain where we are planted. And the reason we are able to do that is because we at first have Jesus Christ living in us. Verse one of uh, verse nine of the first chapter says, "God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord." And so, listen as we bring this entire series, as we've talked about all different facets of the home together, we have realized that we have been in a spiritual fight, a spiritual war. The enemy hates the home. And that's why we hold up the standards that are found in this book because we believe that God is the creator of all things and when he speaks, we should listen. And I think of what the accuser might be saying to some of us in this room even today. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
your past says that there's no way that you've lived up to these standards. If you're a follower of Jesus, if God really loved you, he wouldn't allow those bad things that you've been through or done to yourself or brought destruction in your marriage or you've been on the receiving end. God wouldn't have done that to you if he really loved you. And the effect is we can look at our own situations and we can go, can God really love me? Despite all of this junk that happens in marriages and families and in parenting all the time, is he merciful towards me? Is he loving towards me? And here's what I've been dying to say to you for months now. This is what I want to put right to every single one of us. The demonstration of God's mercy towards you is not found necessarily in the evidence of your life, but is found in the evidence of the Son of God's life that has already been lived for you. His body that was broken for you so that you could live. His death and your life, his, his, his punishment that he took for your sake so that you could be forgiven. He was buried so I could be risen back up because of what Jesus has already done on the cross. I know this. I can have forgiveness. I can have redemption in the name of Jesus Christ. And I think I read somewhere that there was a guy named Joseph, in case you think your family is messed up, who was sold into slavery by his own family. But at the end of the whole thing, he was able to look his brothers in the eye and he said, what, God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God could bring reconciliation through that mess over there. And if you think your situation is messed up, I remember there were a few other guys who, were, who, who, were, who stood before the king and they said, we will not bow down, but we serve only the Lord. And they were put into the fire, but there was another person who was in the fire with them that would not abandon them. And I think I read somewhere that there is one who has resurrected from the dead and has said this to every single one of us, no matter what our circumstance may be, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so he has called us to remain where we are at, but the great news is to know that he remains with us so that we don't have to go it alone. And so I can say with the psalmist in Psalm, Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our Lord. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so we will be able to all look back one day and say, because of what he has done for us, he will faithful then, and so he'll be faithful now. And if he is faithful now, he'll be faithful into the life to come. And so the confidence that you and I have in Christ is that we can remain and be a light where we are planted because he has remained with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. That is the hope that we have as Christians. And so with that hope, would you pray with me?